Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I am Allison Wilmore. And on the final SVU of 2016, we are looking back at the best of the year with the 35th annual Svubi Awards. And Matt, I see that you've dressed in a tuxedo for the occasion. Um, I admire the effort it takes to show up to my apartment uh, in black tie at 9 a.m. on a Sunday. Do you realize this is an audio podcast? I do. I just forgot that part when I got dressed this morning. Okay. Uh, and the rainbow suspenders, what's that all about? I like to party. Fair enough. And the tranquilizer gun? Ah, I was wondering when you'd get to that. Well, you did write the script this time. Ixnay on the ripped skay. The tranquilizer gun is in honor of our listeners' choice review this week. Yorgos Lanthimos's The Lobster, in which single men and women are sent to a detention hotel where they either fall in love or partner off or get turned into an animal. And betwixt their romantic encounters, they go hunt single people living in the forest around the hotel with tranquilizer guns. Right, right. I get all that. But where did you get the tranquilizer gun? eBay. I should have known. Before we get to the lobster and the spoovies, let's do opening break, a segment we do in conjunction with Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few new titles that are new on demand. Allison... It is your turn to provide the picks. What have you got for us? Well, I've got three movies, all of them already available on demand as of this recording. The first is a film that I feel like became a stealth box office hit in its, you know, indie way. It is Train to Busan, Mm -hmm. easily the best Korean zombies on a train movie of the year. Uh, about a divorced banker and kind of absentee father taking his daughter from Seoul to Busan on the high-speed train to see her mother, only to encounter an inconvenient zombie infection that's spreading rapidly across the country. It is brutal and funny and violent, and there is also a touch of class commentary to the group of characters they fall in with, which include a selfish CEO and a homeless man. It's actually the first live-action film from director Yan Sang-ho, who previously worked in animation. And I think if you see it, you're just like, uh, there's a lot of promise here. It's a very good time. So that's Train to Busan. That is now playing, as is Equity. This is a financial thriller directed by Mira Menon, written by Amy Fox, and produced by Alicia Reiser, who's one of the stars, and Sarah Megan Thomas, all women, which was part of the point. It is a story of a group of mostly female characters in 
uh, high finance led by Anna Gunn of Breaking Bad as an investment banker trying to write her career after overseeing an IPO that went badly. There is a lot of backstabbing and a lot of examinations of the kind of unconscious sexism that women can face in a mostly male workforce. Uh, it's a little reminiscent of Margin Call, though it's not based around an event financially that is as major as Margin Call. It is more about the day-to-day -day life of the cutthroat financial industry. So that's equity. Finally, also now playing on demand is South Side with You. This was the first of the year's two young Barack Obama movies. Uh, Obama, apparently a great space on which to project your indie movie. <laughs> it's a canvas, yes. Mm -hmm. A great canvas. Um, this one is written and directed by Richard Tan uh, in his directorial debut. I hope I said that last name right. And stars Parker Sawyers and Tika Sumter as the young Barack Obama and Michelle Robinson, uh, long before they, be, they got married and went to the White House. It focuses on their first dates in 1989 in Chicago. And is really an ode to the before movies, uh, a long kind of like fairly light, but uh, dialogue heavy drama that is about two people interacting over the course of a few hours. So that's Southside with you. And like these other movies, it is now playing on demand. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I understand this discussion is a little unpleasant for you, but it is my duty to prepare you psychologically for all possible outcomes. Now, have you thought of what animal you'd like to be if you end up alone? Yes, a lobster. Why a lobster? Because lobsters live for over 100 years. Are blue-blooded like aristocrats. And stay fertile all their lives. I also like the sea. Very much. I water ski and swim quite well since I was a teenager. I must congratulate you. The first thing most people think of is a dog, which is why the world is full of dogs. Very few people choose an unusual animal, which is why they are endangered. A lobster is an excellent choice. The main review on each episode of Film Spotting SVU is chosen by you, person listening to this right now, along with tens of ones of other listeners via the poll on our website, filmspottingsvu.com. The options for this week's episode were Yorgos Lanthimos' dystopian comedy The Lobster, Nahong Jin's horror film The Wailing, and Elizabeth Wood's teen film White Girl. And that is the order they came in in the poll, with The Lobster receiving just under 50% of all the votes cast. Now, we briefly recapped the premise of the film at the top of the show, but I didn't mention the cast of characters. Of primary importance is David, played by Colin Farrell, who is left by his wife and arrives at the hotel with his brother, who has already been turned into a dog. At the hotel, David makes friends with, or really gets into sort of a, like, frenemy competition with men played by Ben Wishaw and John C. Riley, and he gets interested in a girl with a penchant for nosebleeds played by Jessica Barden, and later he winds up in a relationship with a brutal woman, 
And after that, he gets romantically entangled with a nearsighted woman. And uh, she is played by Rachel Weiss. We also hear her voiceover in the film. Amidst all these various romantic ups and downs is the threat of being transformed into an animal. The details of this curious hotel and the world beyond it, and eventually a trip or two into the civilization that functions seemingly, I don't know if happily is the right word, but it functions anyway. Uh, Maybe obliviously is the right word to describe it. Allison, in discussing The Lobster, which is the English language debut of Yorgos Lanthimos, who previously made the fascinating Greek films Dogtooth and Alps, there are many topics we can cover. The movie's vision of the future, its attitude about love and romance, why the movie is divided into two very distinct parts, and whether we think those parts work equally well. But I think we have to start with the most pressing question, and perhaps you know it's coming. If you were shipped off to the hotel, and you had to pick an animal to turn into, (laughs) what animal would you pick? Owl. Owl. Why yeah. the owl? Well, flying. And then also, uh, you know, you get to go stay up all night. It's a great call. Thank you. It's an How- excellent choice, as the hotel manager would say. <laughs> How about you? I would probably, I will, the bird, uh, a bird is the right way to go to me because the flying so. seems very appealing. Oh, yeah. Why I not? was thinking an eagle just because eagles are kind of, you know, very tough and, and they are inspiring as a symbol. Right. And so, you know, I don't know if they're, it's illegal to kill an eagle, but I kind of think it is. If you opt for like an endangered one. Right. Certainly. So maybe you pick one that's, you know, you can't shoot at. So you kind of maybe prolong your life that way. So, yeah, I was thinking like a bald eagle or something yeah, like that. Birds of prey or where it's at. Yeah. Yeah. OK. Well, that's interesting that we both picked the same. All right. Well, let's talk about the movie. Um, I think the big thing for me, uh, you know, as I mentioned in the preamble there is, is there are really two distinct parts of this movie. There is the part where it's in the hotel, very much about sort of the world and the rules and sur- the survival. Is is David and these other people that we meet, are they going to make it? Are they going to pair off or are they going to be turned into animals? And then there is the second half, and I guess this is a little bit spoilery if you haven't watched the movie yet, where David escapes from the hotel after – I guess we could say just kind of breaking up with the sadistic woman. Sure. That's one way of putting it. Turning after, her into an after animal. That relationship goes poorly. Correct. He makes his way out into the woods where there's this sort of second society, the loners, as they're called, led by Lea Seydoux. And they have their own kind of intense rules and stuff. And that's sort of the second half. That's where he meets Rachel Weiss and they have their relationship. And the first time I saw this movie, and I've seen it now like two and a half times because I watched a couple of scenes, uh, big chunks of it last night to prepare for this. Uh, the, the, the first time I saw it, I loved the first half so much. And I was left very cold by the second half. But the more I watch it, the more I kind of warm to the second half and think I know what it's there for. What about you? Yeah, I feel like it's difficult not to prize the first half over the second half just because it is, it's so funny. Like the absurdism of it is so fantastic. Mm -hmm. And the rules. And And also, I feel like if the first half reads as a kind of absurdist commentary on... Uh, kind of societal pressure to be part of a couple and to kind of engage in a particularly coupled form of domesticity. The second half is not really making fun of singledom because most people who are single are not militantly anti, you know, the prospect of a relationship. And And so... Maybe people who who couple off. Yeah, that doesn't happen that much. So it doesn't feel equal in what it is taking aim at. Right. But I do enjoy the loner's 
life a lot, particularly <laughs> the weird parallels, just in terms of, yes, the ridiculous rules. Right. And in terms of things like they both have dances, like regulated dances, yes. you know, in the hotel. It's this like formal one involving everyone asking each other to dance. And in the loner's world, they listen to electronic music individually and all dance by themselves. I just, I, I think the ways in which it is this alternate society are pretty great. Yeah. But how about you? What caused you to warm to the second part? Well, I think you sort of identified it at the in, in the end there, is that I agree. It's not as funny as the first half. I also think sort of the supporting characters in that first half are so rich that you really kind of miss a lot of them in the second half when they, they sort of start to peel off and not appear quite as much. They they, they you, you get little glimpses of them here and there, but... Um, you know, not as much as you would hope for. I do think, though, that, you know, that there is sort of a mirroring effect or kind of a each half is kind of commenting on the other going on. You pointed out some of the the similarities that you can draw from one half to the other. And I do think it's just generally, as you said, the first half, it seems to be more about making fun of our sort of societal pressure to be in a relationship and how, you know, we tend to kind of judge people who are single or well, to impart equate it, equate it with, with failure well, right. or to equate like a relationship with fulfillment right. and happiness right exactly if you're in a couple you're happy if you're alone you're like not. all of the details you know what we're gonna we're gonna go on trips together and all of the things that like right. are signals of coupled happiness right or the, those hilarious uh propaganda plays, plays that yes. they put on <laughs> to show how being in a couple is superior because if you're walking alone you might be attacked right. but if you or have a, if you're in a group you're, you're fine. fine if right. you're eating alone you're you might choke, choke to death and, die. and no one will save you <laughs> i mean that is that stuff is great and there really isn't an equivalent of that in the second half right but what you have is you see that it's it, it, it basically it becomes sort of this movie almost about like i don't want to say extremism but just the like basically the kind of absurdity of societies and the rules that they sort of put on people. And, you know, these people who are single here, you know, they basically are doing the exact same thing as the people who are demanding you be a couple. They're just, it's just the opposite. It's like that there, that there's no sense of moderation or compromise, or it's just that like people who become in charge, they just sort of take things to extremes and force people to behave according to their rules, according to their, what they want people to do. Yeah. It had me thinking, especially on rewatching it this time, a lot about Dogtooth. Uh, Yorgos Lanthimos is like, I think it was his debut and it was, you know, a film that was a great critic's favorite. And that film was about a household in which these parents had chosen to keep their children, their three adult children at this point in, uh, in ignorance of the outside world and told them that they are basically still children, that they uh, give them, gives them their, their own vocabulary about different things of life. And it is about a character who slowly awakens to the fact that, or slowly starts to wonder if there's any sense to these rules at all, right? you know, and who starts to question the authority she's been put under. Yes. And I do feel that, I mean, the lobster is that as well, right? It Absolutely. is like two forms of rules. Yeah, these rigid been, governments. Right, and, and that are accepted by most of the people there who right. participate in them. Right. And then a character who starts to rattle around inside of there and start to, starts to kind of question what he's told is right has to do with how he feels inside. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I think, you know, as a pattern, I think that 
it's it's a really intriguing kind of topic to return to in these yes. different ways, and yeah. I, I think that he engages with them in such uh, Lanthimos engages with them in such a kind of distinctive way. Mm-hmm. Uh, his characters almost feel like like aliens who have been transported into human bodies and are mm-hmm. trying to figure out the ways of the world. Right. Well, I mean, then that makes sense just given the fact that it, I mean, we can say that I think generally oh, we say it's, oh, it's a dystopian future, but there's nothing futuristic about no. it. It feels more like an alternate universe. Yeah. Um, it, it seems very much like it's the present. You know, it doesn't, there's nothing futuristic about it, except for perhaps however they turn these people into animals, which I think is very, the movie very cleverly and wisely avoids trying to explain in any way whatsoever. And, and I and, appreciate that. And describes it in this kind of almost fantasy like a combination of fantasy and gross details yeah. in which you can be softened by being like washed, like soaked in water a bit. And that's how they start. Mm-hmm. But also all of your extra blood gets donated. I, I don't know. Like that combination of details is so fantastic. Right. But yeah, I think that's a fascinating um, parallel you draw to Dogtooth, which I hadn't thought about. And I, I don't know Alps as well. I've only seen that movie once, but that's another very like rigid group that's you know built on these rules and things. So there, I think there is something going on there that I, maybe we could, you know, put all three together into one sort of uh, thematic connection. That they're, they're, these ideas about rigidity and rules, and the way that they're imposed on the you know members of groups, and what happens, like you said, when someone starts to question, and what I don't know. There's something to me about the lobster too, about that second half in particular, when it's it's. You know, Leia Sidhu's character really imposing her values on other, on you know, particularly on David and the nearsighted woman. Right. It's not that there is the world of the hotel, and then there are people who opt out of it. You have right. to opt into. You have to opt into something, something else. Yes. Yeah, you and have it to is conform in some way yeah. to someone's value system, which may not be your own, but you have to go along with it. And what happens when you don't? And when and what happens when someone becomes so like convinced that their beliefs are correct that they refuse to like acknowledge a possibility of you know anything else yeah there's all that sort of stuff going on there before we i mean we we don't i don't think we need to talk too much longer about it i mean can we talk about colin farrell yeah i was gonna say let's talk a little (laughs) about the performances colin farrell uh i mean is it his best performance it might be. It might be. What is... I mean, I, he's someone who has been around for a long time and yeah. who I, I've always thought is talented and uh, fun to watch on screen. And yet when you run through what he, like what is the movie he's right. famous for... What is the movie he's famous for? Minority Report? Minority Report? I don't... I mean, he's been in a lot of What about of SWAT? I, Phone booth? <laughs> I don't know. I enjoy seeing him in In Bruges. In that Bruges, was a good I guess. one. Yeah. But like this in, in both how enjoyable the performance is and also how it goes against, I think a lot of his previous on-screen performances as either like the handsome guy or yeah, the like slimy just like guy. The stupidly handsome guy right. or like the incredibly sleazy yeah. guy. Those are his go-tos. Yes. In this, he is like extremely awkward. I love the belly. And has the belly. The yes. belly is tremendous. And it's just uh, in generally, generally kind of like dad-like in a vague way without actually being a parent. Yeah, and hapless. Know? He just yes. seems totally sort of besotted with everything. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's magnificent. It's fantastic. It's really great. And yeah, it's funny. It's like you, I'm, looking, I, I, I'm looking now at what movies he's made and he's been a lot of crappy movies. Yeah. Pride and Glory, uh, Winter's Tale, yeah. Saving Mr. Banks, 
the Total Recall remake, which was a disaster. Daredevil. Yeah. Daredevil. Yeah. Alexander. He's a talented guy, though, yeah. and I feel like the seeing recruit. him. The recruit. Oh, the recruit. Seeing him play against type or against movie star type, you know, mm-hmm. to not play the swaggering dude. Right. Uh, he's really enjoyable. I also really enjoyed John C. Riley and Ben Wishaw. John as... C. Riley in this movie is so amazing. He's I, so I, good. I don't think we need the full spinoff, but I would love like a short film about his character, <laughs> like a 15 minute film just about him and his his sort of fate and where he went in the scenes around the scenes in this movie. Cause he's so great in this. I, I like Rachel Weiss's character and I enjoy that arc together, but I, my favorite parts of the film are Colin Farrell with John C. Riley and Ben Wishaw. Totally agree. Yeah. Totally like, agree. Like friends. the scene at the shooting range <laughs> yes. where the, you'll notice all the targets are single people. And when they very fight great. over, over whether their choices for animal are smart or not. Right. <laughs> right. Totally great. Yeah. Or the scene where they, um, after Ben Wishaw's character has, because everyone in the movie, the the, the pairs all have to have a, a, a distinguishing in characteristic yeah. in common, which is an interesting element we haven't discussed. Well, and also, it I mean, I feel like it's a stand-in for the ideas about what you're supposed to look for in a partner, right? Mm. Like, oh, you're supposed to look for some commonality and all right. of that. It, in this, it's so literal. It is like, well, we both had a limp, or right. we're both nearsighted. Or nosebleeds, yes. which is in the Ben Wishaw case, where he fakes them, which is sort of a great touch that to... to sort of land this very fetching young woman with nosebleeds, he starts banging his head against things to <laughs> incur nosebleeds. And whereas uh, Colin Farrell's character tries to woo the heartless woman right, by, pretending by pretending to be, to be a heartless. sadistic, heartless person. Uh, and she's played by Angeliki uh, Papalia, who is in Dogtooth and who's really enjoyable. In That's this. another very funny yes. scene where I think she fakes sort of choking. like choking and he does nothing and she's like, we're a match. Uh-huh. Yeah. But yeah, what I was going to say was the scene where those two couples encounter one another with their child. They've Ben <laughs> yes. Wishaw and, and his uh, love have been given a child because that helps apparently. And, and there's, I think Colin Trust is something like, why would I want any, what the last thing I want right now is a, is a kiss from a silly little girl. And do they, they, they like push her or kick her in the shins yeah, And she or like something. runs away and crying and hugs it's, them. Yeah. It's tremendous. It is tremendous. It's really great. The one other thing, the other touch that I really enjoyed, you mentioned Rachel Weiss. She is doing the voiceover in this movie yeah. throughout the movie before we meet, like for a long time before we meet her character. And I thought that was a very interesting choice. And like you're hearing her talk. And when I saw this movie for the first time, I guess I didn't even realize she was actually in it. I thought she might just be the narrator when we don't see her. And we hear the narration, hear the narration. And then we find out at the end of the movie, near the end of the movie, that she's been that it's like her diary. I thought that was a like a wonderful touch. The way that they sort of reveal a kind of diegetic reason for everything we've seen and heard. I thought that was another very interesting element of the movie that kind of sneaks up on you. Yeah, I agree. I think that, and uh, it's such an odd voiceover as well. In that, sometimes it allows you insight into his character. And obviously she's narrating things that she's not seeing. Right. But sometimes it allows you insight into his character, but other times it almost just repeats what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Like it, it is there as this almost way for her to be alongside him before she ever appears on screen. Yeah. Uh, should we talk very briefly about the, the, the last scene? Sure. Okay. Let's... So to, again, this is now we're getting into the super spoilers. If you haven't seen the movie, Look, I can't tell you what to do, but, you know, if you don't want to know what happens, don't listen. Move on to the next segment. Fast forward like three, four minutes. So, as we've already said, the couples in the movie, you know, they they believe that they need to have uh, characteristics that match up. That makes them 
compatible. And in the case of Colin Farrell and Rachel Weisz, they're nearsighted. Then Rachel Weisz's character is blinded. And in a very another kind of funny scene, uh, Colin Farrell's character is desperately trying to find something else they have in common, but can't find it. <laughs> but they still try to escape the loners together, and they do. But now Colin Farrell is left with a choice, which is, do I blind myself to make us compatible, or do I not? What do you – and the movie is left – Hanging on a she's question. She's waiting for she's him, waiting to, come for him to come back from the bathroom where he's gone, potentially to blind himself with a knife that he's taken from the table at this diner. Do you think he blinds himself? Yes. Really? Yes, because I think that even, I, it, it, I mean, it creates this kind of parallel to the relationship he has with the heartless woman in the first half of the film in right. which he fakes compatibility or tries to basically summon heartlessness right. so Pretend. that he can be with this person yeah, and then can't do it. But I do feel that the desperation of that, like trying of them trying to find commonality again speaks to this fact that I don't think that he has ever understood that maybe like a superficial commonality, you need that to have a relationship, yeah. you know, that like, even if it is, obviously a silly thing to cling to as the common ground you have in a relationship in the world of this film no one has gotten outside of that uh even these two people yeah even these two people who have defied all of the rules right so i feel they like they still want to yes. follow this rule so i feel like yes as an act of desperation you i could totally it. see it happening god but blinding himself with the with the this steak a, knife this is a gruesome film yeah i don't know i i feel like if it was like Oh, I I can't have I only I have a missing one finger. Like that would be relatively easy. Just chop off the finger, but the blinding, I don't I don't know. You don't think you went through with it? I don't know. It's uh What about true love, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's such a it's such a you know, it is a kind of a absurd moment, but it is such a fascinating when you boil it down, it's also about like, well, what are you willing to sacrifice for a relationship? That you believe in. I mean, that is a pretty fascinating question. And, and that's something that has real world applications, not just in societies where if you don't couple off, you're going to be turned into a uh, into a lobster. So, yeah. And they've been like spun out solo. They have yeah. nothing left. So it's true. It's a pretty, pretty, pretty great scene. And it's a it's a fascinating movie. I, you know, I still think the second half is not quite as much of a home run. Agreed. It's like a solid ground rule double compared like, to the first the, half, which is an absolute home that, run. That's it. The first half is so, yeah. so well done and so memorable yeah. that that second half just can't quite compete. Yeah. But it's still a great movie, The Lobster. You can find it on Amazon Prime. <laughs>
walk up apartment in Brooklyn, New York. It's the 89th annual Spoovy Awards. And now, please welcome your hosts, Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Oh, uh, such a pleasure to be here again. Such great, an honor. It's great to be back yeah. for the 89th year. Uh, you know, who would have thought we'd it, make it? It barely but... feels like 70 years have gone by. Honestly, just flown by. Incredible. So every year at the end of the year, Film Spotting SVU does what we call the Spoovy Awards. Other podcasts, they tell you, you know, the best films, the best performances. We like to give out um, some different awards, some different categories. We do a few every single year, and we're going to bring those back. Uh, but we also try to mix it up every year, add some new categories, some different things um, that are sort of relevant to that year in film. Because every year... There's different stuff. There's different themes. There's different movies to talk about. Yeah. You can find, by the way, our top tens uh, on our our respective sites, BuzzFeed and Screen Crush. That's right. Uh, We won't necessarily be talking about the uh all of those films yeah there might be some overlap you know, there might be some overlap but, but not necessarily we, we've got some more arbitrary categories to deal with yeah that are the best films right and as allison says like if you want to hear our top movies of the year like go find those we've got lists they're already up you can find them you can uh, interact with us online if you want to talk about them let's do some other stuff let's highlight some other movies let's let's break out of the pack of the same four or five movies that everyone's talking about which we love too but it's nice to mix it up. Let's start with the two categories we do every year that um, I really feel like we own these. Maybe other people can say someone did it first. But I think these are – I feel like these are very Spoovy Award. Uh, the, the, we own these. This is us. And they are the We Didn't Get It and the They Didn't Get It Awards. They're pretty self-explanatory. Let's start with the We Didn't Get It Award. This is a film – that is widely uh, hailed by, could be audiences, could be the critical community at large, could be both, but that we, for whatever reason, did not get. We didn't like it, and we are, we are confused why they have become massive, either you know critical or financial hits. Allison, do you want me to go first, or do you want to go first? Yeah, why don't you go first? All right, so I got a few runner-ups, runners-up. I never know if that's right. Runners-up? Runners-up, let's say. Okay, I've got a few runners-up that I just wanted to briefly mention. Deadpool, yes. massive success because, I, like, to my mind, it was, like, it was aware that it was a bad superhero movie, which somehow made it okay. Like, it wasn't a good superhero movie. It was just self-aware in its badness. Yes. And uh, huge and we, we talked about this movie on the podcast a little bit, and, yeah, I'm with you on this. Very I, I inexplicably, hugely popular. Uh, it's just come out, but Rogue One I thought was fine. Uh, I do not understand the people saying that it's the best Star Wars movie since Empire Strikes Back. And, no, there's been a lot of hyperbole. And saying it's way better than The Force Awakens. I just, I just don't get it. It's fine. The ending is is really good. The la- you know, the action is very solid, but that's about all I can get behind in that movie. And then very quickly, one smaller movie because I didn't want to just have like big movies. I was really disappointed by L. Interesting. I thought, you know, I'm a huge Paul Verhoeven fan. It has a shocking premise about this woman turning the tables on the man who raped her in this twisted relationship. But that was kind of all that I found interesting about it. Like, Isabel Huppert... That's the part I find the least interesting about that movie. Really? I think that as a character study, that movie is tremendous. Really? See, I thought Isabel Huppert is good. But when I hear people say, like, oh, the only thing keeping this together is Isabel Huppert, like, what I hear is... Or, like, when they say she's the only thing that works about it, like, that's... I I don't know. It just to me says like, there's not a lot else here besides her. We could talk about this for a long time, but I do think she has, I think she brings more to the character than is on the page, but I I would agree with that. But I do think in general, I think it is a tremendous movie. 
Okay. Well, we well I didn't get that one. But uh, my ultimate pick is a movie that has a 75% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's made almost $700 million worldwide. It is a movie I saw in the theater with my wife. And when it was over, she turned to me and said, that was great. And I turned to her and said, that was terrible. Allison, do you have any guess what this might be? I Tell me. It was Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. The prequel to the Harry Potter-verse from author J.K. Rowling and director David Yates. I recognize that I am, in this regard, a bit of a like muggle killjoy. I've never been a huge Harry Potter fan. Um, it's mostly a franchise that has kind of passed me by. I like a few of the movies. But I thought Fantastic Beasts was maybe the worst out of all of these movies, certainly down at the very bottom. I think the main character is boring. I think Eddie Redmayne's performance as the character is just laughably mannered. I think the plot is borderline incomprehensible if you're not an expert in the Harry Potter universe. And not only that, the plot has almost nothing to do with that main character. It's almost this tangential thing that he kind of stumbles upon, wanders through. I think the supporting characters are mostly forgettable, although I did kind of like Dan Fogler as like the one nomadge, the human in the crest. Also, nomadge. That was the best they could do. Nomadge. Just call them muggles. Muggles is great. No, oh, but Muggles is charming and British, and we're in terrible America. <laughs> Fair enough. Point taken. And then the whole thing with the ending with the, the shocking reveal of this villain that meant nothing to me. I guess if you're a Harry Potter super fan, you know who it is. But then, and you know, and the fact that it was this surprise, this actor that showed up, I'm obviously trying to not mention who this is. But frankly, as little as I wanted to see Fantastic Beasts 2 before this gentleman showed up, now I really don't want to see it. It had the opposite effect for me. It was like, forget it, I'm out. And to a certain extent, this is my assessment of the larger Harry Potter universe. I think it's a great cinematic universe with a lot of so-so to crummy movies. Like, I get why people enjoyed going into this world of magic and wizards and all the little details that are really rich and fun. Like, I get it, but I think the movies that are stuck in them are boring. They're just not good movies. They don't have great stories. A lot of the characters just don't work. And to me, it's weird because I feel like Fantastic Beasts fits in a lot more comfortably with the movies that we get, the blockbusters we get that people crap on that, but for some reason, Fantastic Beasts like got a pass. Like to me, it's not that different from like a Batman versus Superman. Convoluted storytelling, uh, too much time spent setting up future movies, not enough time spent making the current movie good, really dark, like make like that movie, Fantastic Beasts is surprisingly dark for like a movie sure. for kids. So that is my pick, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, though we didn't get an award for me. I didn't get it. So to be fair, I don't think that most of that 75% on Rotten Tomatoes was like people being like, what an incredible movie. I think yeah, most but, of them were like, yeah, it works enough. Mm, I don't but know. it doesn't work enough. I mean, I think it's fine, but I also don't care about it enough to argue <laughs> for the point. Like, Fair I don't enough. think, yeah, which I think like is, I, you know, this has been a year of a lot of movies that... Uh, have come off with and people have like i think this has been a point of discussion have come off with like a pretty a good rotten tomatoes uh score that reflects a lot of people being like it's fine or mm. it's passable or things like that you 700 know. million dollars though a lot of people saw it well people turn out for that franchise yeah. uh my we didn't get it pick is very different from yours but it is at a 91 percent at rotten tomatoes if that's the measurement it is i daniel blake directed by Ken Loach, uh, the winner of this year's Palm d'Or Award, to the surprise of many critics, 
this is a film about a the title character played by Dave Johns, who is a 59 year old joiner in Newcastle who has a heart attack at work and then is not allowed to go back to work because his doctor hasn't cleared him yet. And so he tries to apply for disability benefits and is denied due to a bureaucratic bureaucratic snafu and finds himself having to uh, go on unemployment despite the fact that he is not technically allowed to work. And then he befriends a single mother named Katie, played by Haley Squires, who has two children and who has been moved to the area from London because it's where the government found housing for her, despite the fact that they don't know anyone there. And she gets lost on her way to the benefits office and is uh, penalized for that, uh, despite the fact she didn't know her way around. And so together, these people struggle through a punishing system of bureaucracy in order to get money to get by. Uh, you know, Daniel longs to get back to work, is not allowed. Katie struggles to find a job uh, and has a lot of trouble. It is absolutely moving for a while. Uh, And then it keeps pushing and it keeps pushing and it doesn't trust its audience or its characters to convey this uh, very clear uh, and, and hard to miss message of protest against austerity. And I think that even if you have a deep deal of sympathy towards Ken Loach's point of view here, I just found it to become this, frankly, like hilariously old-fashioned tract in which characters die dramatically at key moments or fall into sin. I, I, like, I don't know how else to describe how it's depicted mm. in this movie. Like literally someone just becomes a fallen woman mm. uh, to hammer in points that are being made. And I, I found for a movie that is supposed to be making you know, is is in theory making a case for these characters uh, who are, you know, desperately trying to maintain human dignity uh, while while getting help from the government that, you know, supposedly is there to to assist them. I was shocked by how much it just sacrifices the humanity of its characters to turn them into tragic examples. I couldn't believe that this movie uh, won the Palme d'Or. Palme d'Or. I really, like, you know, Ken Loach is someone who I go back and forth on. I have deep deal of respect for his career, but I, overall, I don't, there, especially recent movies, uh, he hasn't always made ones that I've connected to. I appreciate his commitment to um, always uh, having his uh, politics and his point of view and like creating films that make art cases for them. I don't think that this one does a good job of that, frankly. I don't, I think it is condescending to its audience and its characters in its attempts to tell it, you know, push this point of view. Uh, and I just, I, when I walked out of uh, the screening of this that I saw, I happened to see it at Cannes, and I saw was sitting next to someone who was like, "I just thought that was great," and I just couldn't believe him. <laughs> I just, I, you know, I, it's it's so he- it has such a heavy hand, uh, and I, in ways that I just I I I found really uh, just turned me off. So uh, I Daniel Blake is my we didn't get it award winner. Winner. Congratulations, I Daniel Blake. Yeah, Ken Loach is a guy that I respect, but I, I there's some I mean there's some filmmakers that you know you just don't connect with. And he's a guy that I've just I've seen a bunch of his movies and they rarely sort of hit me. They I usually go, Yeah. Yeah. That's that's just kinda how he goes for me. All right, let's do the They Didn't Get It Award. Now, They Didn't Get It Award. This is a, uh, the opposite, where it's a film that, for whatever reason, didn't connect with audiences, didn't connect with critics, but we enjoyed it, and we don't understand why they, the, the capital T, didn't get it. Uh, I guess I'll go first again. A few other quick runners-up. I, I must admit that I liked 
War Dogs, uh, a movie that very few people saw that seemed about the arms industry that I liked, had a very good Jonah Hill performance. If you're a Jonah Hill fan, especially, seek out War Dogs. I also really loved, and to me it was like the clear best blockbuster of the summer, but got just okay reviews, widely dismissed as just another you know, and a string of a franchise. I loved Star Trek Beyond. I felt like that's a movie that eventually people are going to realize was, you know, pretty relevant to 2016, had uh, some smart stuff going on there, well-directed by Justin Lin. That one, I feel like, just, it deserves more praise. It did fine. Um, But, and then then just briefly, a littler film that's just coming out, Fences, when when people talk about Fences, the new Denzel Washington movie, I often hear. I think I've heard Allison say it. Yep. It's a good performance in there, um, but it's 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 a play. It feels like a play. It's 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 not really a movie. It's a filmed play, that sort of thing. And I think it's a little bit. Uh, there's more going on there. I'm working on a piece about that for Screen Crush, and it's a, bar- a movie that's barely out yet. So I don't want to say much more on that. We'll save that for another time. But I wanted to throw that in honorable mention. But my pick, another Chris Pine movie. From the beginning of the year, has an okay Rotten Tomatoes rating, 63%, but it made just $27 million at the box office when it came out in late January, the dump season. Even the – I don't even know if the, the studio got this one. It is The Finest Hours. Okay. Alice, it's giving me a, a, a look, which means that I did find a film that – even she did not get. Uh, it is a historical drama based on a true story about this incredible rescue at sea um, where the Coast Guard uh, rescued this, the, the crew of this sinking oil tanker in the middle of a nor'easter off the coast of Massachusetts in 1952. Chris Pine is very good in the movie. It's generally very well directed by Craig Gillespie. But the real star here, a guy who's getting a lot of Oscar buzz this year for another movie. Casey Affleck, you know, he's great in Manchester by the Sea. I'm not diminishing that movie. I love that movie. That's on my top 10 list. But Casey Affleck is almost as good in this uh, kind of borderline schlocky historical drama, The Finest Hours. He gives this incredible kind of very brooding performance. He's kind of got a Montgomery Clift thing going in this movie. He has a great monologue where he delivers this speech to all the men on his ship who are freaking out because it's slowly sinking while he peels the shell off a hard-boiled egg. It's amazing. And I'm not saying The Finest Hours is the best Casey Affleck movie of the year set in New England. I'm not saying that. But I'm just saying this movie is good. It's it's really solid. And, you know, we don't get a lot of movies that are sort of this kind of solid movie for adult, like a mid-range budget, uh, you know, not based on anything or at least not based on a superhero or a franchise or a cartoon or anything like that. And I just enjoyed sort of getting lost in this movie for 100 minutes or wherever it was. If you're a fan of, you know, rescue movies, suspense movies, true heroism tales, this is one to watch. It is the finest hours. They didn't get it. Yes. You didn't get it. Oh, I didn't get it. But I, I you know, salute your attachment to this. Thank you. Jumble of accents. Um, all right. For my They Didn't Get It Award, a few quick runners up. I did want it. Uh, my King, My One's movie starring Vincent Cassell. Uh, it's it played at Cannes, was like widely mocked by a certain type of film critic. Uh, and considered like you know lesser than i watched it actually on a plane i think when i was flying uh, international flights and i feel like it it has a very awkward 
uh, framing device in which its main character, who is coming off of an abusive relationship, is trying to recover from a knee injury. But the actual portrayal of this relationship and like someone who is just larger than life and at the same time is like slowly gaslighting you, I thought was so well done. I don't know why this movie was so derided. Also, while it's hardly short on, at this point, weirdly getting awards, Hacksaw Ridge, I think, is not one that a lot of uh, uh, other critics have been talking about, you know. Uh, but I do think that for all of Mel Gibson's garbage qualities. <laughs> uh, you liked when it. You, yeah, when you watch you it. You like, Ridge. He is He's a, a director. He is a great director of, like, swooping Hollywood, uh, especially violence. Oh, yeah. No one is, I think appreciates violence <laughs> with quite the same zest as Mel Gibson. Yeah, I, that's uh, fair. You know, and I, I think there is something to that. Like, I keep thinking about that movie. Mm. But my ultimate pick All right. for this category yes. is coincidentally also featuring Casey Affleck. Wow. And it is a movie I know you don't like. Oh. Triple Nine. Oh, I don't like yes. this movie. This is a crime thriller from yeah. the Rhodes John Hillcoat that came and went very quickly. Yes. Uh, despite having... An incredible cast. Yeah, it does it's have like an amazing cast. Astounding cast. Yep. Uh, it is, uh, it, it's a movie that reminds me in some ways of Lawless, which was John Hillcote's last movie, uh, which also didn't get a lot of attention. Didn't really care for that one. Uh, and that one was about uh, kind of prohibition bootleggers. Ugh. Tom Hardy was in it. Like that John Hillcote. Shia LaBeouf, right? Wasn't Shia, he yeah. in that too? John, John Hillcote, yes. He, John Hillcote has a taste for letting like actors kind of like go big yeah, that go big. I really enjoy yeah. because I feel like he's, he just understands how to get interesting things out of different, different uh, actors. And in this case, uh, it may not add up to a kind of hole that leaves you with a lot of impact, but this kind of whole crime story involving corrupt cops and not corrupt cops and villains, uh, criminals, and some of whom are worse than others, uh, is tremendous fun in just how much he lets all of these uh, actors cut loose. In particular, Kate Winslet as a ruthless Russian Jewish mob boss in red suede boots. <laughs> it's just, it, this movie, by the way, is set in Atlanta, <laughs> the least convincing Atlanta <laughs> of maybe all time. But then you've also got Anthony Mackie and Clifton Collins Jr. as corrupt cops. Yeah, uh, You've got Woody Harrelson, who was tremendously oh, fun boy. as like the wacky but dangerous. You're making uncle. fun of the accents in the finest hours. Oh yeah, Come Casey on. Affleck uh, as the moral center and the kind of person who slowly is revealed to be the linchpin of the whole movie. Mm -hmm. Aaron Paul and Norman Reedus as a pair of dirtbag criminals. Uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor as their sad-eyed badass leader, and it's really nice to see him get to do something that is not just stand there looking mournful, which I think is the role that he tends to get defaulted into. Michael K. Williams as a no-nonsense trans sex worker and informant named Sweet Pea, and Gal Gadot. He was pretty good. I'll give you that. Yes, Gal Gadot, Wonder Woman herself, yeah. as a Russian party girl. <laughs> I enjoyed the hell out of this movie. Oh, that's good. I think that to look at it, to be like, oh, this is going to be like some kind of, to be like a quality a quality drama is to expect the wrong thing from it. I think it has like this slight sheen of prestige based on just who is in it. And the fact that John Hillcote is, you know, uh, is like a fairly respected director, but I think you have to enjoy it as just like fun, just like a lot of people chewing the scenery and really in ways that I thought were, were uh, such a good time. Uh, I, I think it's, it's the kind of movie that, People will catch up <laughs> catch up with uh, when it, wherever it turns up, and be like, "I can't believe this was a movie that came out that I didn't even hear about." Um, 
And uh, so you should hear about it. So that's my They Didn't Get an Award goes to Triple Nine. All right. I like the fact that we each picked a They Didn't Get an Award that the other person didn't like. (laughs) I think that's very fitting. All right. Our next Svoovy category is Notable Child Performance. This was a suggestion of Allison's. There's a lot of great child performances this year. And so why not honor that? Allison, do you want to go first this time? Sure, I'll go first. All right. Who is your notable child performance of 2016? Uh, my pick is Royalty Hightower, who has the best name maybe of all time. In <laughs> that is fits. true. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't as over the moon about uh, Anna Rose Homer's directorial debut as somewhere, uh, though I liked it and I love the look of it, the cinematography. But there's no denying that Royalty Hightower is excellent as the 11-year-old Tony who's facing adolescence that ends up being like represented by the divide in this community center she hangs out in where the girls are on the dance team and the boys are learning boxing. And Hightower just transmits everything about what her character is feeling and even what her character doesn't realize she's feeling yet. Um, So much of this movie doesn't involve her saying anything. There are long scenes in which she doesn't necessarily have dialogue, but you understand exactly what's on her mind. Mm -hmm. And I think for like a child performance, that kind of transparency is really incredible. Uh, She also is great at showing this character's transformation from being an awkward dancer to a good one. She's very convincing in that. There is a scene shot on an overpass in which she finally kind of finds her rhythm. And the smile that slowly appears on her face is just electric. It is... In a stylized movie, it is a child performance that I think is feels both incredibly natural and fitting the kind of aesthetics uh, of the film. I think I'm excited to see what she does next. Royalty Hightower is my pick for that category. How that's, about you? That's a great pick. I definitely could have gone that way. I also think there's another very good performance in that movie from Alexis Neblet as Beezy. Yeah. I love Beezy in that movie. So there's some very good child performances in that one. Technically, the best child performance I saw in 2016 doesn't count because it's a movie that doesn't come out in U.S. theaters until next year. But I'm going to very briefly mention it's Senia Nanua from the zombie movie The Girl with All the Gifts. She is like the main character in this incredible horror film that I saw at Toronto. And she is amazing. Uh, So it's sort of just mentioning that to get that on people's radars. Hopefully next year when that comes out, I don't know the release date, but hopefully people will find that and appreciate that film because I really, really like that one. Uh, But instead, uh, I'm going with a different choice that came out this year. And I'm going to cheat and give it as kind of an ensemble award for the cast of Sing Street for a whole bunch of very, very good teenage performances. Really not a bad one in the bunch. There's Ferdia Walsh-Pilo as Cosmo, this aspiring rock star in 1980s Ireland. Uh, ben Carolyn plays Darren, his sidekick. Uh, the band that he forms is kind of scheming manager. There's Mark McKenna as Eamon, the music guru of the group. He can play any instrument. There's a wonderful montage where he actually does that. And then you also have Ian Kenny as Barry, the bully, the local bully. Another performance that is really full of wonderful surprises. That character goes to some places you do not expect. Uh... Technically, Lucy Boynton was probably like 20 years old when they made this, so maybe she doesn't count. But I have to throw in a shout-out for her as Rafina. She's the main character's muse, the inspiration to start this rock band. Uh, he is trying to impress her um, and claims that he is he needs her to help him film a music video, even though he doesn't have a music video or even a band. And when it comes to teen films and kid performances, you usually get one of two complaints. Either the kids are so precocious and child actory that they don't seem real, or the kids aren't kids. They're 30 years old. They're pretending to be teenagers with very little success. 
And Sing Street has these kids who feel like kids. They don't feel like kid actors. They feel like real teenagers. They have real fears and desires and struggles and triumphs. And I love Sing Street. I've seen it three times. Uh, it never fails to get me yet, at least. It hasn't not affected me. It has not broken me down into a puddle by the end of the movie. And uh, I think a lot of, large part of that is the ensemble performances from some very good child or teen actors. So that's my Svuvi Award for Notable Child Performance, the cast of Sing Street. Next up on the Svuvis. I like this category. A lot of competition for this one. Yes. The Least Wanted Sequel of 2016. And boy, howdy, I had a hard time picking one because there's a lot of quote-unquote winners. Yeah. Losers, really, in this category. One of the defining stories of this year. It really was. What do you got, Allison? I have Jason Bourne. Now, I love the Bourne movies. I think the Bourne Ultimatum features what may be my favorite fight scene of all time between Matt Damon and Joey Ansah in that apartment in Tangier. Yeah, that is a good one. Uh, But Jason Bourne didn't only feel unasked for. I felt like it ended up diminishing its main character in Mm. trying to figure out ways to bring him back. You know, first, there was this whole surveillance storyline involving a tech company that was kind of like a google tech company called Deep Dream. Uh, it's a storyline that fell out of date in its attempts to be of the moment. And yeah. also it was just an odd fit with all the kind of Cold War remnants that define Jason Bourne's kind of personality and backstory. And second... Bourne is lured back by the promise of more backstory, and it is backstory that actually makes him less interesting, (laughs) you know? Instead of being this idealistic soldier who signed on for a program and then got turned into this weapon and, like, feeling, you know... PTSD over it and all of that, he suddenly becomes this guy who just wanted to please his dad, who was right. like the head of the program. It doesn't add anything. Yeah, of it's interest. like amazing Spider-Man syndrome. Yeah. It's like when you do that to the character that just sort of happened kind of more randomly, it makes them less interesting, not more interesting. Right. So I, you know, in addition to being a kind of like sluggish movie, I think it really did a disservice to its main character. But how about you? What's your least wanted sequel? Well, I'm going to go with, after a lot of debating, because there's so many options, I went with Blair Witch. The surprise sequel to The Blair Witch Project from Adam Wingard and Simon Barrett, who made The Guest and You're Next. And who are great. They're fantastic. And that's sort of why I ended up going with this, is that the movie was originally announced as The Woods, an original found footage horror movie. And it was only when they premiered this thing at San Diego Comic-Con about a month before its release that they like revealed to the world, surprise, it's not The Woods. We made Blair Witch, an actual sequel to The Blair Witch Project. And that's why I kind of picked this, is not – you know, not just the fact that I found the movie to be bad, and not just was it a sequel that I did not want, is that I did want to see The Woods. It's like, if you asked me which would I rather have, the original movie from Adam Wingard and Simon Barrett that's kind of loosely inspired by The Blair Witch Project and that aesthetic, or would I rather have the sequel to The Blair Witch Project where they have to, you know, kind of pay homage and discuss the mythology of this franchise, which has never been all that interesting, and introduce a bunch of like high-tech twists to make it feel modern, but really do nothing new or inspired with them, and then just throw in a whole bunch of jump scares. There's no question which I would want. And I still want, like, I want to see the woods. I want to see them take the ideas that sort of underpin the Blair Witch Project and put their spin on it. Agreed. That's what they do. They take sort of these tropes from horror and they do their version. That's what makes the guest and your next so great is that they're familiar, but they're original. And the Blair Witch, 
you know, it did not feel original anyway. It just felt familiar. And so that to me was what made this one so disappointing is that it was the kind of really bad version of what could have been a great movie. So there you go. That's my pick, Blair Witch for Least Wanted Sequel. So for our next category, we thought this has been a year in which obviously the election has uh, really dominated it, but also has made it so that almost all pop culture seems to keep reflecting intentionally or not reflecting our feelings about this election. And so I've seen so many pieces about how this movie is more relevant than ever or how this movie is actually about the age of Trump in which when most of these movies were made long before any of this uh, ever, ever came to pass. So I thought we would do... What is the movie that for you, in now looking back at the end of 2016, feels like the best expression of 2016? Matt, what, what do you say? Well, I decided instead of going political, I went very personal, like the movie that summed up sort of my experience of 2016. And it's one of my favorite movies as well. It is Tony Erdman, actually. Um, it is a movie about a father and a daughter. And, uh, you know, I had my my daughter was born very end of last year, but this whole year has very much been defined by that relationship. And granted, the movie is about an older father and an adult daughter, not a baby. But um, the relationship between this father and daughter, it's strained at times, but also very loving. The dad is this unrepentant goofball. The daughter is very serious and smart. I did kind of feel like I might be looking into a possible future of mine. That thought crossed my mind on a couple of occasions. But beyond the subject matter, what really struck me as sort of the kind of 2016 in a nutshell thing about it was the tone, the tone of Tony Erdman. And I really didn't mean that pun until I said it out loud, I swear. It's just the way that this movie is so funny at times, and sometimes it's sad and melancholy. Um, and, and the way that sometimes that happens, like in the middle of one scene, a scene can be hilariously funny. And then like five minutes later, you're, you're really kind of contemplative and thinking very seriously about what's going on and, and about the wider world as well. Um, like global economics is kind of something that's a big part of that movie. I just found that the way that kind of sweetness and sadness coexist in this this like the perpetual present of that movie to me that really reflected the way that I experienced 2016. You know these moments of absolute joy, and these moments of absolute terror at times, kind of butting up against one another, um, and trying to like push aside the bad so you don't miss the good in life. There is something about that in this movie that felt very true. Maybe not for everyone, but very true to my experience of this year. And so all of that. You know, like this movie almost in some ways it almost felt like therapy to me, like watching this movie was like exercising some um, some some uh, some stuff I had going on. And like when I walked out of the theater on the, after this movie, it was kind of on a high in a way. And it wasn't just because it's like an uplifting feel good movie. It's just like it really puts things in perspective. So that was my pick for 2016 in one movie, even though it's not necessarily, you know, uh, relevant to you know national politics or anything tony erdman it's my favorite movie of the year i think it's great uh but it is not my pick for 2016 in a movie that would be batman versus superman dawn of justice your second favorite movie uh, of the year uh, when i saw this in theaters uh zack snyder's dc contribution seemed ludicrous to me i thought it miscalculated both batman played by ben affleck and superman played by henry cavill it was so needlessly dour and self-important and so cynical about marketing future projects even more than the usual versions of these movies that are pretty cynical already 
this movie that was in theory about ideological differences that in practice just came about how cool it would be to make these two characters fight right. and then make up over the fact that they both had moms. Uh, but honestly, <laughs> after the end of this year, it seemed very appropriate uh, to picture... A 2016, in which these two iconic pop cultural figures had been warped from heroes into monsters, mm -hmm. you know, and in their appeal, apparently that's what we've been longing for, someone to lay down the law and, mm -hmm. you know, that uh, to turn Batman and Superman into a murderous psychopath and a sulky god, arguing over who's better at, you know, defending the, the American way and their city. I felt... Uh, Weirdly perfect. I still think it is a disastrous movie, but I think it is also uh, an incredibly on point one. Uh, it just in terms of like this funhouse reflection uh, of of uh, things that we hold dear. Uh, yeah. So Batman v you make Superman. A, you make a good argument. I, you make a good argument for a terrible movie. Yes. You make a good argument. Yes. Our last spoofy category of this year um, is one we also do every year, where we try to predict. The best movie of next year. So in this case, 2017. With usually limited success. Yeah, sometimes we're way off. Now, I will say last year, my guess has not even come out yet. It has played at festivals, but it, its release was pushed back. Or maybe it just, you know, it, it hasn't come out in 2016. The Lost City of Z. That was my pick for 2016. It's a great movie, but... I missed it. It played the New York Film Festival. I you, thought, yeah, you, I thought it was fantastic, but... Well, I'm still looking forward to it, yes. but I'm going to pick a new movie anyway. So that'll be sort of like my second pick for this year. Do you want to go first with your pick? Sure, I'll go first. Uh, my best movie of 2017 is... Has the very catchy title right now of Untitled Detroit <laughs> Project. Perfect. Yes. Uh, this is the new film from Catherine Bigelow, written by Mark Boll. They worked together on Zero Dark Thirty and Hurt Locker. And this one is based on the 1967 Detroit riots, starring John Boyega and Jack Raynor, Will Poulter, uh, Hannah Murray, Anthony Mackie, Caitlin Deaver, Jason Mitchell. It's got a great cast. Amazing cast. Yeah. Uh, I am a huge Catherine Bigelow fan. And I, I think that this partnership with Mark Bull has been very fruitful. I just can't wait to see this. I can't wait to see what she does next. And so I'm very, very holding solid. out for it. Very solid pick, even if it doesn't have a title. It's hard to, it's hard to argue with that one. That and also one, when you know very little about it other than right. like when it's set. Right. I <clears throat> definitely think that could be a actual contender for the actual best movie that we might be talking about at this time next year. With uh, a tip of the cap to John Wick Chapter 2. And uh, Spider-Man Homecoming, which mm. I'm both looking forward to very much. To me, I had to go with Baby Driver, the new film from Edgar Wright. The plot summary is, after being coerced into working for a crime boss, a young getaway driver finds himself taking part in a heist doomed to fail. And the cast includes Lily James, John Bernthal, Kevin Spacey, and John Hamm. And if the premise, cast, and director doesn't do it for you, I don't, I don't know what will. I mean, to me... Any Edgar Wright movie is going to be uh, is going to be a, a moment to uh, savor. This one definitely seems like it's got a, a it's his take on maybe the chase film, the you know the uh, the car film. It's called Baby Driver. It definitely sounds a little bit like The Driver, which was a big influence on Drive. Uh, I I can't wait to see it. I mean, maybe it won't be the best film of the year, but I can't imagine one that I'm looking forward to more than that. 
We've gone very long here, so we're going to just dive right into Behind the Eight Ball with our three new releases, two listener recommendations, and one film chosen blindly by number from our My Lists. Allison's going first. Allison, what do you have for some new releases? All right. New on Hulu is Horace and Pete, Louis C.K.'s self-produced series uh, about a bar in Brooklyn. I watched the whole thing. It is fantastic. You should watch this. It's got a great cast. It's great. Uh, new to Hulu... Uh, Excuse me. New to Amazon Prime is Anomalisa, Charlie Kaufman's animated film, one of our favorites of last year. Finally streaming, uh, David Thewlis, Tom Noonan, Jennifer Jason Lee, Cincinnati Hotel. Uh, sadness and truth about the human experience. It's also excellent. And finally, new to Netflix is a film I haven't seen yet. It is the second scripted drama about a young Barack Obama from this year. This one directed by Vikram Gandhi. It is Barry. And it's about Obama's time at Columbia University in 1981 when he is dating a white woman, played by Anya Taylor-Joy from The Witch. Uh, so that's one I'm looking forward to see, Barry on Netflix. All right, two listener recommendations. Okay, we have one from Known in Orange, California, who writes, My wife and I just finished Phoebe Waller-Bridge's Fleabag, based on your recommendation, so thanks for that. It's so brilliant. And now we're obsessed with Waller-Bridge, and as a result, discovered that she has another show streaming right now. It's called Crashing and is on Amazon Prime. At first, the show seems a lot wackier than Fleabag, perhaps because it's less grounded. But in, in, the, ta- in the end, you'll find yourself clutching your heart for these characters. It's hilarious and crude at times. It's sweet and heartfelt. It's also uniquely Waller-Bridge, who has this incredible talent for mashing humor and humanity together in ways that result in a beautiful, indelible portrait of finding your way in the world, warts and Arts and all. Thank you to you two for what you're doing. Uh, he is on Twitter at subject plus verb. And we have one from Brad in Lunenburg, Massachusetts, who I'm reading mostly because he's affirming something I said in a lot other episode. Uh, Brad writes, I felt the need to write in after listening to your back and forth with Matt regarding The Fountain. Though Requiem is amazing, I think The Fountain is Darren Aronofsky's best. I've heard, no, you're right. You're right, Brad. I've heard other reviews describe the film as confusing or a mess. Personally, I think it's more of a marketing mess. It was sold as a love story told over a thousand years. That's very misleading as there's only one narrative with the earliest arc in the film, the story of the conquistador being the story his wife wrote in the last arc, The Tree of Life in the Bubble, written by Hugh Jackman's character in his attempt to finish the book his wife could not. I've heard the third part described as being cold. To me, it is one of the most romantic and heartbreaking films I've seen. It wrestles with mortality and man's inability to control the world around him. The only thing Hugh Jackman's character can control is the ending of the story, which brings the two together forever. It wrecked me. I am with you. The fountain is available for rent. Okay. And one film to by my list. You gave me number three. That is the OA. I'm assuming it's the OA and not the OA uh, because I have not watched it yet. Uh, this is the sci-fi drama Netflix original, the latest of the apparently weekly Netflix originals. This one is created by Britt Marling and Zal Bakmanglich, uh, who did The Sound of My Voice together, a film we both like, and The East, a film that I don't know what our opinions are. Uh, about. <laughs> but in the series, Marling stars as a woman named Prairie Johnson who resurfaces after having been missing for seven years. She was blind and now she can see. Um, I've heard mixed things about it, but I'm interested in seeing what these two have done. Matt, are you ready? Yes. Okay, three new releases. Okay, first up, if you've seen any ads for Sing, which is the new Illumination animated movie that's coming out about a singing competition, animals singing, you might be surprised to see that that very craven-looking piece of entertainment is directed by Garth Jennings, 
who previously made the very charming and very lovely movie Son of Rambo, which is now streaming on Amazon Prime. It's about two English boys who set out to make their own remake of First Blood, the original Rambo movie, and it is uh, it's just wonderful. Rambo, Son of Rambo, spelled R-A-M-B-O-W. That is now streaming on Amazon Prime. Next up on 2B TV, we've got Return of the Living Dead, the 1985 horror comedy by Dan O'Bannon. It sounds like a sequel to Night of the Living Dead, and that is because, and this is a fun bit of trivia I don't think a ton of people know, George Romero actually co-wrote the original Night of the Living Dead with a guy named John Russo, and afterwards they each retain the rights to make their own sequels. So George Romero made Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, and on and on and on. And then Russo wrote a novel called Return of the Living Dead, which was then adapted with a lot of changes by Dan O'Bannon to this movie, which is a little bit more darkly humorous than your sort of standard zombie movie. Um, it, it certainly wasn't as famous as the... Romero movies for a long time. It's more of a cult film, I think, has gotten a better reputation as the years have gone on. I only saw it for the first time a couple years ago. It's great. It is Return of the Living Dead, highly recommended on Tubi TV. Finally, at our recent live show in Chicago, I outed myself as a fan of Semi-Pro, the Will Ferrell comedy about his hapless ABA basketball team. Today, I out myself as a fan of... Daddy's Home, which is available on Amazon Prime and Hulu. Uh, This is Farrell's buddy comedy about a rivalry between a stepdad and the biological father of his stepkids, who's played by Mark Wahlberg. So it's sort of a spiritual sequel to the other guys, reunites those two guys. They're great together. Again, very similar chemistry to the other guys. Farrell's kind of the straight-laced nerd. Wahlberg's the wild man. It's a funny movie, and it has a great ending. Maybe the best movie ending of anything that came out uh, in 2015. That is Daddy's Home on Amazon Prime and Hulu. How about two listener recommendations? Okay, first up, I have a recommendation from Phil in the UK. He says, as a rather seasoned horror fan, it takes a lot to elicit much of a reaction from me now. Decades of horror will do that to you. Then I found Goodnight Mommy, which is streaming now on Amazon Prime here in the UK. It's a German-language horror movie which starts slow... And it could pass as an art house drama at times, but boy does it build. It really shows what the genre can still do when done right. I'll never look at super glue the same way again. So that's Goodnight Mommy, and that's a recommendation from Phil in the UK. Thank you, Phil. And finally, I have Ulrich Hahn's recommendation here from Bay Ridge in Brooklyn, not that far away. Uh, he writes, Hey, Allison and Matt, love the podcast. I have a couple of geeky recommendations for two new streaming titles on Netflix. For the Love of Spock is a documentary about Leonard Nimoy's life and his iconic role as Spock in Star Trek. It's heartfelt, has a ton of 8mm film of him and his family, uh, which is no surprise since the film is directed by his son, Adam Nimoy. As a longtime Trekker, I couldn't help but be emotional seeing all the footage of Leonard Nimoy being interviewed over the years and speaking at conventions. He was quite the Renaissance man. Uh, Also, with Rogue One Upon Us and Darth Vader returning to the screen, I'd like to recommend I Am Your Father a crowdfunded documentary about David Prowse, the man behind the mask of Darth Vader. 
There's some real tragedy here since his face was never seen, and in Jedi, when Darth Vader's mask is removed, uh, spoiler alert, I guess, George Lucas chose to hire another actor for that scene. The story takes a few turns, which leads to Prowse donning Vader's cape once again. It's good, but not great, but still essential for Star Wars fans. Keep up the great work. That's from Alric Hahn in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, and those recommendations again for The Love of Spock and I Am Your Father on Netflix. And I've heard about For the Love of Spock, and I'm actually just adding that to my my list right now. And one from your my list. I don't know if this has ever happened before, Allison, but we have the same my list pick this week. The OA or the OA. I'm going to go with OA because that's the planet in Green Lantern. Uh, yeah, seven years after vanishing from her home, young woman returns with mysterious new abilities, recruits five strangers on a secret mission. Britt Marling, Zalbat Manglish, I was a big fan of their stuff before, so I'm curious to check this out. All right, let's get to our listener's choice options for next time. We've got three recent movies, and I think we've got uh, an interesting batch. Allison, you have the first option. I do. It's a film that I missed, uh, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, which will be on Hulu on the 24th of December. So it's not there yet. Uh, This is Tina Fey's war drama in which she plays a journalist who gets shipped off to Afghanistan and, uh, you know, experiences everything there. Margot Robbie, Martin Freeman, Christopher Abbott's film that got very interestingly mixed reviews. And as a big Tina Fey fan, I'm always intrigued by what she chooses to do uh, in films. So that's your first choice. Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, which will be on Hulu on the 24th. Our next option is, for at least a couple of weeks anyway, (laughs) the most recent Woody Allen film, Cafe Society, which is available on Amazon Prime on December 22nd. stars Jesse Eisenberg, Kristen Stewart, Steve Carell, Jeannie Berlin, and Corey Stoll. In the 1930s, a Bronx native moves to Hollywood and falls in love with a young woman who is seeing a married man. And... It's always interesting to check in with Mr. Allen, uh, a figure of some interest, some controversy. I actually must admit, I did miss Cafe Society. I didn't get a chance to see it this year. I've missed a bunch of his... I tried to watch every single one of his movies for a long time, but it eventually became impossible. So uh, this is one I would like to see myself. That is Cafe Society. It is available on Amazon Prime on December 22nd. Okay, and your third pick is... 13 Hours, which will be on Hulu on December 31st, a.k.a. 13 Hours, The Secret Soldiers of Benghazi. Uh, This would be the latest, until the Transformers movie, by director Michael Bay, uh, based on uh, Mitchell Zukov's 2014 book, starring James Badgedale and John Krasinski and some other people as a bunch of burly but like noble uh, private contractors who, you know, uh, try to come to the rescue of people in Benghazi. It, uh, Michael Bay swore up and down that this movie was not political, but of course, by choosing to make a movie about this topic, it kind of pretty essentially is. But it is also a super Michael Bay movie. And I think there is a lot that is interesting to talk about in terms of what Michael Bay's aesthetic does to real world scenarios like this, especially ones that are so kind of like politically loaded. So that's your third choice, 13 hours. It, it, it will be on Hulu on the 31st. All right. Which movie should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? You can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com or enter in the poll on the right hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, December 26th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on our Twitter account, twitter.com slash film spotting svu and you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on our next episode which should be up around tuesday january 3rd 
filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive as well as a list of direct links to the things we discuss on the show the Film Spotting SVU remixed theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of his work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com. And we will be back in two weeks in the new year with more movie recommendations and the review that you pick. And in the meantime, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Allison Wilmore. Matt is at Matt Singer. And the show itself is at Film Spotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions across the days of things you might be interested in, on, uh, interested in, in various platforms. For Film Spotting SVU, I am Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening. Thanks.